This morning as we turn to this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Church of God in Corinth, uh, we want to move on from our introductory remarks. We've spent a couple weeks doing that and a couple weeks spending some background information on the city of Corinth and on the Apostle Paul who penned this letter and also on his affirmation as an apostle. And so today we want to make a transition We're not really going to be going very far. We're going to be looking at verse 2, but we're going to read verses 1 through 3. But I want to just do a a couple parts on understanding God's church, first of all, and our calling. That's what this section of Corinthians Paul addresses right out of the gate. He wants them to understand that they are God's church, and also he wants them to understand our calling. And there's probably two things that impact us as Christians more than anything else is understanding who we are as the church and understanding who we are in Christ. And if you can't get those two things right, you're going to just have a horrible, rough time as a believer because it's essential that you understand who you are as the church of God and also who you are as the body of Christ. Uh, I think one of the most important things to understand foundationally when we're studying anything but especially the scriptures, and I think you'll agree with me on this, is we have to understand what certain terms mean, what they mean. Today we can throw words around, and certain words mean one thing to one person, and maybe they mean something else to somebody else. We've redefined words. They have new meanings. Uh, The proper definition of a word is essential to any kind of communication. If you don't know what the person is saying, if you can't understand the words they're using, you're not going to understand the conversation. It's really the lifeblood, you might say, of our communication, whether it's at work, whether it's in our marriages, whether it's just parenting our children. You have to communicate clearly. And to communicate clearly, there has to be an understanding of words. It reminds me of a story I heard. A husband read an article to his wife about how women, you know, we've all heard this they use 30,000 words a day, right? And the, the men, they only use 15,000. And the wife replied to the article when he was done, well, that's because we have to repeat everything to men. <laughs> the husband turned to his wife and said, what? <laughs> well, words are important. They're important that we communicate clearly. I want to read for us the text of our scripture this morning so we can focus on the first half of this little series, Understanding God's Church. So Paul writes here, Paul, verse 1, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not going to get very far, I said this morning, but we'll get there. So he addresses this church in Corinth. Notice he doesn't call them the church of Corinth. He calls them what? The church of God. Regardless of whether the church in Corinth had more than one center for worship, Maybe they were a multi-site campus. Who knows? The apostle considers them what? One church. Why? Because there is only one church. There's only one church. 
And that's really regardless of what may be going on in the church, as we're going to find out in the book of Corinthians. Things like parties, divisions, factions, pride, arrogance. Paul does not want to talk about churches. Rather, he wants to talk about the church of God. It's so vital that we understand that the church belongs to who? It belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. He purchased it. It's not our church. This is not our church. This is not my church. This is not the elders' church. I know we refer to it as that, hey, why don't you come to my church? See, and I think that filters into our thinking sometimes where we really start to believe that this is our church. Sometimes to the point where we get a little carried away. And we walk into church. Into my church. And wouldn't you know, someone's sitting in my seat. (laughs) Now we've all been there, right? I mean, I am totally a creature of habit. Ask my wife. I just do things the same way all the time. Okay? But guess what? It's not your seat. It's not even your building. It's not your church. This is God's church. This building, everything that we have here could go away tomorrow. But the church would still stand. The body of Christ would still, we would still meet. Maybe we'd break up into small groups and meet in houses. You know, I often think of the time when the government's going to say, you know what, you can't uh, say certain things. You can't call certain things sin. And if you do, we're going to crack down and we're going to take away your nonprofit status. Well, I'm going to continue to preach the word of God no matter what. So eventually we know that that day is going to come, right? And the, the moment they say, now you've got to pay taxes on all your the house and on the property here. You know, we couldn't afford that in our budget. What would we do? Probably sell the property. Why, you couldn't sell the church? Sure we could. <laughs> we meet in homes. We go rent a place. We could do whatever we have to do. See, don't get caught up that the church is a building because it's not. And I want to give you an understanding of God's church. This is going to be a lesson in ecclesiology. What's ecclesiology? It's a big theological word for studying the church. That's all it is. So let's define the church. The church, the word here in verse 2, to the church of God, ecclesia in the Greek, it means called out ones. It means those who have been called out. Speaking of their holiness. Speaking of their difference. They don't blend in with everything else. They're called out from the world. The church's holiness is grounded in the fact fact that we have been called out from the world. That's why we're called the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, listen to this, a royal priesthood. You mean we're priests? Yes. Maybe you grew up in a church where they taught that they're all, there's just one priest. You know, you have to go to that person for confession as I did and all that. No. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the church, those who have been called out. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are what? God's people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what the church is. The church is those who have been called out from the world to salvation to Christ by God. It says we're an uncommon people. Sometimes, you know, you talk about different things going on, and sometimes you're talking to different pastors, and, you know, they all got stories. Oh, man, we got some real winners in our church. You know, they go, well, it's like every church, we all are that way. We're all uncommon people. We all got our little quirks and our little weirdness going on in some area of our lives. We're uncommon. We're set apart to live differently than the world. That's what the Bible says. And our regular failures to live righteously do not invalidate that calling. Just because we mess up once in a while doesn't mean we're off the team. That's what we sang about this morning, right? He will what? Hold me fast. That's so important. In Christ, the church is set apart as holy. It's seen by God as holy. Positionally speaking, practically, yeah. You know what? We all sin probably every day in a myriad of ways, in thought or deed or action, whatever. But positionally before God, because we are his children, we have been saved by his grace through the sacrifice of his son on Calvary, in which we put our faith and trust. He saved us positionally. We are holy to God. But the church is always striving, and we should always be striving to make this positional holiness a reality in our experience. Just because we know that we're going to sin, we're not perfect, doesn't give us the excuse to just go do it. We want to strive for holiness in our lives and in our churches. God declared us holy in his Son. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says that, calls us saints. We're going to be looking into that next week. What does it mean to be a saint? Wow, you mean we're actually saints? We're not only priests, but we're saints? Yeah. Well, I thought the saint were those things you prayed to, you put on your dashboard and keep you safe while you're driving, you know? No. We're called saints. And now by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's making us holy each and every day through the process, what we call sanctification. He makes us more like Christ each and every day. Now, I have to say the modern-day evangelical church seems to have lost this understanding of the church. They just have. With the church growth movement, all this stuff, all these different tactics people are trying to use to fill their pews. So many churches today are more concerned with being relevant, making the church relevant to our culture, maybe, or to our society, and you know what? By going down that path, by doing that, they lose that sense of holiness. They want the church just to be another club. Just come and have a good time. They lose the sense of being called out, separate from the world. 
Judge Robert Bork said it this way in slouching towards Gomorrah. He said, if a church changes doctrine and structure to follow its members' views, it is difficult to see the value of that church and its religion. Religions must claim to be true and in their essentials to uphold principles that are universal and eternal. No church that ponders, panders to the zeitgeist, which just means the, you know, whatever people want to hear, deserves respect. And very shortly, it will not get respect, except from those who find it politically useful. And that is less respect than disguised contempt. It's a wonderful quote. Well, let's define the church. Before we talk about the church, we have to define the church. John MacArthur put it this way. The church is not a physical building, but a group of believers, not a denomination, a sect, or an association, but a spiritual body. The church is not an organization. Let me say that again. The church is not an organization. I'm tired of people trying to tell, oh, well, you should do this in your organization. I'm not involved in an organization. But it's a communion. It's an organism. A fellowship that includes believers. So first of all, let's look at the universal church. The universal church is, you have two, two definitions. You, universal church and you have the local church. We're going to look at the universal church first. The universal church is the body of Christ. It's all believers everywhere. Doesn't matter whether you're in Thailand or you're in India or you're in Antarctic. If you know Christ, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're part of the universal church. The church of Jesus Christ, as I said, is not an organization, it's an organism. It's breathing, it's alive, because it's made up of people who are to be living and loving and learning and laboring, leading and following. Together for the glory of Christ, who is the head of the church. Or aren't you, is the pastor the head of the church? No. Well, how about Ken? He's an elder. No. We're not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. The church is seen, it's described as, in in the scriptures, as the body of Christ of which Christ is the head. It tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul says this. He's talking about marriage, but he's using the church as an example. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as what? Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So who is the head of the church? It's Christ is the head of the church. Well, who makes up this body? The body's made up of those who are called by God. It tells us right there in verse 2 of our text, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what? Called to be saints, it says. And then down in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think it was the wrong scripture there in the outline, so it should be 1 Corinthians 1, 2 to 9. I made a mistake, sorry. 
Christ baptizes the believer with the Holy Spirit, and he places them into the body of Christ. People say, well, how do I join the, the, the body of Christ? Do I just join the church? Do I just you know, come up here and fill out a form and say, okay, now I'm... No. We're talking about the universal church. We're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about those who God has saved. The only way you can enter this body is Christ baptizes the believer with the Holy Spirit and places them into the body of Christ. God does this. This is not something you can do. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's not talked about, talking about water baptism. It's talking about spiritual baptism. Don't ever confuse water baptism with spiritual baptism. Well, what's the difference? Spiritual baptism happens the day you are saved. The moment you are saved. The moment you place your trust and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You turn from your sins to the Savior and you say, God, be merciful to me, a Savior or to sinner, and God saves you, that's the moment you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're placed into the body of Christ. Well, what about water baptism? Well, that's important too, but that doesn't come to later. That has nothing to do with your salvation. Absolutely nothing. Well, you mean I could be a Christian and... If I didn't get baptized yet and I died, I'd still go to heaven? Of course. Baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism doesn't save you. The only kind of baptism that saves you is spiritual baptism. And that's when God places you through the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And that's what he says there. We were all for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It doesn't matter where you came from, Jews or Greeks, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, slaves are free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So never believe the lie that some Christians put out there today that, oh, I got more of the spirit than you do. No, sorry, you don't. We all have the same amount. The problem is, are we yielding to it? Are we being filled or controlled by that spirit each and every day? There's no excuse for the believer to say, well, you know, I don't have what it takes to live the Christian life. Yeah, you're right. You don't. That's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. Okay, you need to rely on the Spirit to do it. That's why Paul said, it's not me who lives this life, but it's Christ who lives, what? In me, through me. Each believer also has a unique function within the body. This is kind of exciting. We're going to jump ahead. Turn a couple pages to your right. 1 Corinthians 12. Because this should get you excited because you know, you're part of this body. Now, what happens? You know, think if you showed up and you got, you got selected for a, a football team and you showed up for the first day of practice and the coach didn't have nothing. He didn't have a football. He didn't have any pads. He had no field to play on. He had nothing. You would say, what kind of team is this? Right? You wouldn't be impressed with that. When we become part of Christ's body, he equips us. He gives us everything we need through the power of the Spirit to do what he's called us to do. Look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all the way down to verse 12. He talks about spiritual gifts, and we're going to get into all this eventually. But listen to what he says beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one, remember, that's what we just said, just universal church is one body, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body. 
so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized, there it is, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, and then Paul kind of uses some humor here, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Think if your whole body was just a giant eyeball. That would just be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, that's, that's kind of the humor he's using here. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. If the whole body were in here. I mean, think about that. Hopefully it's good looking here. I don't know. That'd be weird. Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, look at this. This is so important. God arranged the members in the body. Who arranged the members? God. God arranged the members. See, as Christians, we don't have any right whatsoever to come to church and say, well, gee, I really wish I could do that. You know, I want to do that guy's job. I want to do this person's job. I want to do that. God, why don't you give me that gift? We have no business saying that because God has gifted each one of us uniquely with different personalities. He's, he's made us. He's created us with different giftings, different talents. And so he says, this is the way God has arranged it. He wants to make sure that his body is arranged properly, so he arranged it himself. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. You mean, I don't, I don't get to choose? No. <laughs> no. You know, it's kind of like a lot of times when you join a team. The coach will see certain qualities in you, right? I mean, usually the bigger, heavier guys are what? They're on the line. They're, they're that, you know, they're, you're not going to put them as a wide receiver. They can't run that fast. You've got these tall guys that, you know, run like a gazelle. Well, yeah, they're going to be a wide receiver because they can book down the field and, man, they can leap above everybody and catch that pass. The, co- the coach wouldn't put him as a center. That wouldn't make any sense. See, God has arranged his body the way he wants, just the way he chose. And because God is all-knowing, I would think that God wouldn't make a mistake. That God distributes these gifts and arranges the members the way he chose. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand... I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Verse 24, where our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, 
all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We need to understand that basic principle. Because then all of a sudden it doesn't come, become about me and my and I. It becomes about us and you and we. And this is what they were struggling with in the church of Corinth. So the church needs to be seen as the body of Christ. Secondly, the church needs to be seen as a family. As a family. Now, some of you right about now are probably going, oh, man, you don't want to, you don't know, want to know about my family. You know, I'm in the church to escape my family. I get it. I mean, I grew up in kind of a weird family, too. I mean, we all got weird families, to be honest, in some segment or another. But as the church, as the body of Christ, we're to be seen as a family. First of all, because we're all children of God. We're all children of God. Now, this isn't the universal stuff you hear out there in the world. Oh, we're all God's children. No, I'm not saying that. Because that's not true. How do you know that? Are you saying that just because people believe differently than maybe Christianity, they're not God's children? That's exactly what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Jesus even said it in the New Testament. He called a segment of people what? You are of your father, the devil. Talk about condemning some religious leaders. So he didn't shy away from the idea that the church, those who are brought into the church, are God's children. So we're not saying that everybody's one of God's children. I mean, everybody was created by God. But we all don't have that relationship with God. Through Christ, you can. That opportunity is there for you. You turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. You can become a child of God. This is speaking of we in the sense of the church. Those who place their faith and trust in Christ. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. And it's always important to include verse 13. A lot of people don't. Because it says, who were born, not of blood. In other words, it doesn't matter what family you were brought up in. Nor of the will of the flesh. Oh, you mean I didn't do this by my own will? I didn't become a Christian by my own will? Well, he follows up. He says, nor of the will of man, but whose will was it? Of God. See, when we understand our salvation properly, we realize that there was no way that I would ever choose God. I would never come to Christ if it wasn't for God first intervening in my life and drawing me to himself, as the Bible says he will. So we're all children of God. Secondly, we're brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 7.15, this is talking about divorce and things like that. But it says, if the unbeliever partner separates, let it be so. And then it says this, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I just want you to focus on the brother or sister part there. Who's he referring to? He's referring to Christians. The Bible calls us brothers and sisters. We're part of one family. Now, whether your upbringing was positive or not, maybe you don't get along with your brothers and sisters, who knows? It's different in the body of Christ. We're called 
to be in unity. We're called to be peaceful. God has called us to peace. So we're considered his children. We're considered brothers and sisters. It's a family. And then you can't have a family without a father. Don't allow the modern culture to try to reorient your thinking on that. It takes a male and a female to make up a family, a mother and a father. I know the culture and the society today is saying, well, same-sex marriage is the way to go, and it's, you know, it doesn't make any difference, really, as long as they love the children. I'm here to tell you it does make a difference. It makes a big difference, especially for those children. And it's not the way God designed it, because if it was, nobody would be here. Stop and think about it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. He made them what? Male and female. Why? So they could populate the earth. If he just had two males, guess what? We wouldn't be here. Or two females for that matter. So God is our father. Christ is our brother. Look at what Hebrews 2.11 says. This is interesting. It says, for he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified, meaning the church, all have one source. This only comes from one place. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you understand that Christ calls us brother? I mean, think about that. He is God. And yet he, he calls us because we are in Christ. God is our father. Christ is our brother. That is the universal church. That's the big picture of the church. Well, what about this church? What about this building? Well, this is called the local church. This is one of the local, one of the many local churches. But you notice here, back in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he doesn't say to the churches of God. It's not plural. Why? Because there's only one church. There's only one universal church. Well, what is the local church? The local church is a smaller group of believers that come together to worship, fellowship, receive teaching from the Bible, and evangelize, hopefully, in their local area. The model of the church is formed by looking at the priorities and the structure of the early church through the book of Acts during the time of the apostles. This is what we model our church after. Well, what were the priorities, you might ask, of the early church? It's on the back of your outline there. First of all, there was teaching. There was teaching. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Sometimes I have people visit the church and they'll say, boy, it seems like on Sunday mornings, it's just like the sermon like is the major part of the deal. <laughs> well, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Well, I mean, you don't, you know, I mean, you have some music and stuff, but it just seems like most of the time is people sitting there studying their Bibles as you kind of talk about it. Right. It's called teaching. Well, don't you think people have a hard time with maybe hanging around that long to get to the point? There's doors in the back. I mean, you know, people leave all the time once in a while. I, it doesn't bother me. You know, I, hopefully I kind of stay to the time of frame of what we're supposed to be doing here. But the calling and the priority should be teaching. 
We don't want to just come together and share nice little stories and make you feel all nice and send you home. I want to teach you the word of God. That's what anybody who ever teaches in this church desires to do. They want to transfer to you the knowledge that maybe they possess through some hard work of studying to you, to expose you to it. The teaching of God's word is vital to the growth of any believer. If you're not under the teaching of God's word, you're not going to grow. 1 Peter 2.2 says, like newborn infants long, that means desire, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for it. Do you desire Bible teaching? I pray to God that you don't just come here once a week and thinking this is going to fill your teaching tank. I pray that you listen to KFAX, that you listen to the internet, that you, 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 you do some different things to, to equip yourself even outside of the pulpit teaching ministry of this church. Because as a growing believer, you're going to need all the teaching you can get. Sometimes it's funny because once in a while I'll drive Uber early in the mornings. You know, and I'll be cruising down 101, have somebody in the backseat going to the airport, usually 4.30 in the morning, something like that. And, you know, I wear a little wireless headphone because the directions on the app tell you where you're supposed to go. And that helps me. (laughs) And usually sometimes the people want to talk. Sometimes they don't. But whether I'm talking to him or not, I have iHeart app open on my phone, and I'm listening to KFAX in my ear. So I'm listening to John MacArthur or, you know, uh, uh, who do we just see? DeCourcy in the morning that early, okay. Alistair Begg. And they're talking to me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And sometimes it's funny because they'll be talking about something in my ear, and it comes up in the conversation. It's just weird. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. And I look really smart because I'm just kind of quoting what's coming through my, my ear piece. But I figure, you know what? If I drive around for an hour or so, why not put something into my head? You know, I don't want to just not be taught. And there's no excuse for any believer today to say, oh, I don't know where I could get any teaching. Download our app. Download Grace to You apps. You have thousands and thousands and thousands of messages at your disposal that you can listen to anytime you want at your convenience. So the teaching of God's word is vital. And you know what? God equipped the church for this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 12. God gave the church gifted pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. It says that. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How are we going to build up the body of Christ? It's through teaching. It's through edifying. So that you can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Well, that's one priority, teaching. Second one, if you look there, it's it's fellowship. Fellowship, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind with the same judgment. 
What is that saying? That you have fellowship. You know, it's hard to have fellowship with somebody if you're just totally on the opposite polar ends of the spectrum in, in so many different areas. And that's why it's so important to understand that we are called to be one body in Christ. And that fellowship already exists. We just have to kind of act on it. The early church was involved in each other's lives. They ministered to one another in that bond of unity. They cared for one another. And I'm very happy to be part of a church that has a sense of fellowship. You know, sometimes people tell me somebody's sick or they visited somebody before I even know it. And we're just a small church. Why? Because you're ministering to one another. You know, you're not waiting for the pastor to call him. You're going to call him. You're going to approach him. You're going to talk to him. That's so important to do that. And then another priority, thirdly, was communion. Also referred to the, the breaking of bread. It talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17, all the way down to the end. It talks about having communion together as the body of Christ. And we don't just have to have it on the, we do it on the first Sunday of the month. So we'll be celebrating it in a couple weeks. But, you know, as I was studying this past week, I said, man, maybe some Wednesday night we'll just randomly have communion. Why not? We could do that. There's no protocol there. It's just believers coming together, acknowledging the death of Christ. And I think Jesus said, do it as often as you can until I return. Sometimes we get in a rut. Ah, once a month deal. And then the third, fourth thing there was prayer. James tells us in James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, when the early church met together, its members were devoted to all these things, but one of these things was praying together and praying for one another. And I know that we are part of a praying church. I think our prayer could always increase more, but that's the heart of the church, the heart of being dependent upon God, the heart that recognizes God as the head and the provider and aligning the direction of the church by the will, with the will of God. And if you're wondering, well, you're telling us to pray. When can we pray? You know what? You can pray every morning, I think at 9.30, 9.40, something like that, over in the classrooms over here. We have a prayer time specifically for this service. And there's people that meet over there. And you can go and you, can, you don't have to pray. You can just attend and, and just show up and, you know, if you don't feel comfortable praying in a group, that's fine. Nobody's going to judge you or anything. But it's the idea of gathering together as the body of Christ, being dependent upon God so that he might work in the hearts and lives of people. I mean, there's so many things we need to pray for as a church. We need to pray for the morning service. We need to pray for the Sunday school workers. We need to pray for the nursery workers. We need to pray for the radio ministry. We need to pray for the conferences we have and the different ministries that go out of here, the women's Bible studies, the men's Bible studies, the fellowship groups, all that stuff. That all needs prayer. So if you want to show up Sunday mornings at 9.30, 9.40 over there in the classrooms, guess what? You'll be early for church. You won't be late because you'll be coming here to pray first. So that's a good, good way to do it. Uh, the women have prayer meetings every Thursday here in the fellowship hall. They pray for an hour. And usually they'll have anywhere from 
three to five, six, seven, eight women come and pray specifically for whatever needs. Charles Spurgeon said this, a couple quotes. He says, pray until you can pray. Pray to be helped to pray and do not give up praying because you cannot pray. For it is when you think you cannot pray, that is when you are praying. And then he also said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual, spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. Are you dependent upon God? Well, that should show up in your prayer, your prayer life. Well, we've seen the priorities of the church. Let's look at some of the structure. It's an organism, as I said. It's not an organization, but it does have structure. And first of all, we understand that structure because God gives it the structure. He gifted men who are given to the church to serve the church. And we'll go through this list rather quickly. First of all, you have the apostles. The apostle means sent ones, one who's sent on a mission. Paul was an apostle. Uh, in the strictest of, of its understanding, it means the 12 plus Paul. Because he was called a unique apostle because he was kind of born out of due time. He wasn't there during the time of Christ. He came after But guess what? He still met the qualifications because the qualifications of an apostle were being chosen directly by Christ and having seen personally the resurrected Christ. That's why it was important that Christ come back and reveal himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And you can read about that in in Acts. But we also believe there's no possibility for anyone to be an apostle in the church today in the strictest sense of the office. Now, we're all sent ones, okay? But in the sense of like an Apostle Paul or the Twelve, okay? They included, uh, there, there were people who were, in the, even in the New Testament, who were referred to as apostles, people who were sent on a mission like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and others. But in the strictest sense of the office, that went away after the New Testament was completed as did the prophets. The prophet either foretold or foretells the truth of God to God's people. That's what a prophet does. The purpose of the prophets, like the apostles, the office of prophet, was to lay the foundation of divine truth upon which the church, Christ's body, would be built. That's what it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. That the church is built on the foundation of the prophets, and the apostles. Well, guess what? When you're building a building and you finish the foundation, you don't put another foundation on top of the foundation and just keep on building foundations. No, you put in the structure. So once the foundation was laid, at least two of these offices, apostles and prophets, kind of faded away. You don't hear a lot about them. Now, there's people today that call them prophet. You know, they'll call themselves a prophet or they'll call themselves an apostle. Well, that's just them calling themselves an apostle. It doesn't mean God made them one. Uh, Now, that's different than the gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, the idea that you can stand up and, and, and foretell the word of God, not tell fortunes, but foretell, explain the word of God. That's a gift that was given to the church. But the office itself has ceased. Thirdly, evangelist. That's someone who's particularly interested in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, when we were with Andrew Rappaport, when he w- we were out here 
we were down at Max's one day having lunch, and the stir, the uh, stewardess, the, the waitress came over, and you know we'd been in there before and kind of didn't know her personally, but kind of were familiar with her, and uh, she comes over. She goes, "Can I help you?" You know, and um, Andrew, first thing he says was, "You know, uh, we're going to order some food in a second, and after our food comes." We're going to pray and thank God for our food. And I'm sitting there going, what is he doing? You know, this is so weird. And I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? And he goes, so when the food comes, we're going to pray for our food. And I just wondered, and he looks at her name, Amelia, or whatever her name was. Is there anything that you need prayer for? We'd love to pray for you. Talk about, I mean, the girl was like, oh, uh, well, yeah, you know, I have a, I don't know what she said, I have a child that's going, well, you know what, we'll, we'll, pray, we'll make sure we pray for that. And it was a door that just flung wide open. And I thought, what an ingenious way to share the gospel with somebody. You know, and he, she was able to, he was able to leave her some literature at the end of our meal there and everything. But her whole demeanor changed, thinking, you're going to pray for me? Sure. And you know what? When we prayed for our meal, looked over my shoulder, and she's standing back there. And she's got her head down. <laughs> I mean, she's a waitress in Max's, but she's being reverential because she knows. And I'm so thankful that Andrew remembered to pray <laughs> for her, you know, and he did. And it was, it was a good testimony. But evangelism is, is one of these giftings that people have. They just come up with creative ways to share the gospel with others. And then you have pastor teachers. The pastor is the one who shepherds, cares for, protects God's people. Remember, Christ is the chief shepherd. We're just under shepherds. Uh, teaching is the primary function of pastors. Uh, the role of a pastor, a teacher, is to faithfully preach the word of God. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, I'll just say this. I've met some interesting people who call themselves pastors. And they'll introduce themselves as pastor. I say, oh, oh, really? And there's some big church in... Well, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm the pastor of skate. You're the what? The pastor of skate. What is that? Well, you know, we have a skateboarding ministry. And, uh, you know, so I hang out with the kids at the park and, and ride skateboards with them. I mean, that's your real title, the pastor of skate? Yeah. I was blown away. Because that, you just don't see that in Scripture. Okay, the role of a pastor is to be able to teach and proclaim the word of God. That's why God gave these gifted men to the church. And sorry, ladies, it is men in the Bible. Gifted men were to equip the saints for the work of service. Now, that doesn't mean women can't teach within the confines of the church. We have many women that teach here at, at Grace in the women's Bible studies. And that's fine because they're gifted to do that. But when it comes to preaching and teaching within the confines of the church in front of a mixed crowd of congregation, the Bible limits that to men. It wasn't my idea, it's God's idea. And then you have the office of elder or overseer. So you have these, these different gifted men, but then let's dial down. We'll look at the office of elder or overseer because this talks a little bit about the structure. Elders were appointed in every church in the New Testament. Every church had elders. 
Uh, Acts chapter 14, 23, it says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 14, 23, or Titus 1, 5. This is why I left you in Crete. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So elders are not people within the congregation who have a savvy business sense and they're popular in the community and you want them on the board. That's not what an elder is. An elder is someone whom God has gifted, okay, to come up within the the, the church and and, and hold the, the office of elder. And they're, they're called to that work. It's not something that I should need to talk somebody into. In our church, we're a small church. Ken and I are the elders. That's it. That doesn't mean it's topped off at that. There may be men sitting here right now who feel a burden, feel a calling on their life to become an elder in our church. Come talk to us. We need all the help we can get. If you meet the qualifications, then you could be an appointed as elder. Secondly, they were appointed. Notice they weren't voted on or whatever. That's why here, if, if someone were to become an elder, it wouldn't be, okay, here's Johnny Appleseed. You know, let's see if he gets a popular vote with the people. No, that's not how we do it. Ken and I would spend time in prayer. We'd probably even ask other men to spend time in prayer. If someone came to us and requested to be an elder, we'd take time, months probably, to orient ourselves with that person, and that person could become oriented with us, make sure that they meet the qualifications. After that point in time, if Ken and I felt led of the Lord to appoint that person an elder, at the, at the, uh, we would hold a congregational meeting, and we would say, you know what? Or we would announce to you first, hey, Johnny Appleseed wants to become an elder in our church. He has a desire to do it. He meets all the qualifications. Uh, Ken and I, as your elders, have really prayed about it. We feel very strongly that he would be an asset to our elder team. And uh, we'll give it a couple weeks. If you have any questions, you have any concerns, we want you to come talk to us. And so there'd be a, a period of several weeks. And then there'd be a date given and we would meet together as a congregation, and we would say we would like to appoint so-and-so as an elder here in this church. Do you, as a congregation, affirm the directive of the elders? So you're not necessarily voting on individual elders who's more popular. It doesn't become a, that kind of a game. And that's why they were appointed, okay? Because these men are to be men who were vetted. Well, they're also to be Elders are to rule. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We're to rule. We're to give direction. Okay, we don't just get together every Sunday and say, hey, what's going to happen today? Okay, there's some direction given with the worship, with the preaching, with the facilities. All those things are kind of fall under the, the rule of the elders. And then elders are to oversee and shepherd. First Timothy chapter 5. This is sobering. It says, So I exhort the elders among you <clears throat> as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight. Look at what it says. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, I I pray the one thing you see in the life of Ken and I is that, yes, we're elders, we're leaders in this church, but we are servants. And you can call upon us anytime. If we need to serve you in some way, we will do that. And that's the heart of a servant leader. That's the heart of, a, of an elder. It's not we sit here and tell you people what to do. That's not what an elder does. We're to shepherd the flock. And we do it out of love. We love in each, each and every one of you. And we want to care for you. And, and we want to be informed if there's things going on that we don't know about, that maybe you need care and we, we didn't hear it. Come and share it with us. We would... Love to serve you in whatever way we can. And then the members are to obey and submit to their leaders. This is what Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is very sobering. You know, this isn't something you get a free pass on. It's not like I just show up in in heaven one day and God, hey, that a boy. No, you know what? I'm going to have to give an account for what I've done here in this church as its shepherd. Ken will have to give an account as an elder. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You know, I am so tired of going to pastor's conferences and you, you get to talk to a pastor and like, oh man, I am just such a, man, my church is, oh, blah, 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 blah. Not one single positive thing comes out of their mo- mouth. And I just want to say, you know what? Why don't you just quit? Seriously. Because there's no joy in it for them. For whatever reason. And see, if you can't serve the Lord in the ministry that he's called you to serve him in with joy, then maybe he didn't call you to that ministry. And that doesn't just go for pastors. If you're over there in the kitchen, I don't know why I have to do this every month, you know, put this food together. I don't even want to do this. Don't do it. I'd rather not have any food than have you in that state. Seriously. And that goes for any ministry. But it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So, you know, you're, you're called, we're called to serve with joy. You're called to kind of submit with joy to our leadership. That's what the Bible says there. Well, what are the qualifications? I'll just read one of these here. Titus uh, chapter 1 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Notice it says the husband of one wife. That's why we say elders need to be men. And his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Trust me, I've had a lot of things go wrong. But you know what? You're above reproach. And he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered 
or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give direction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a tall order. And there's, you know, you can read 1 Timothy too if you want. That's a tall order for anybody. And this does not by any means mean that you're perfect in every area here. Okay, but you understand that God has a calling on your life and that, you know what, for the most part, this stuff is in check. So those are the qualifications. And then you have the office of deacon. You have the elders, you have the deacons. Deacons were those who were called to serve the needs of the church under the direction of the elders. And what happened in the, the New Testament church, um, and the, the office and the qualification of the deacons are stated there in First Timothy. You can read that on your own. But an example of men serving the church is in Acts chapter 6. The apostles, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, brought everybody in. And they had an issue going on in the church. It was growing fast. Needs were becoming uh, quickly unmet. And the apostle says, it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word to serve tables. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Now, that's not saying we're better than that. They were just saying there's only so much we can do. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So some of the widows in the early church were, weren't getting their meals. You know, the Meals on Wheels wasn't operating correctly. <laughs> and so <clears throat> it wasn't being done efficiently. So they were missing a couple meals. They started to complain. And the elders said, look, there's only so much we can do. Let's get some men to help us with this. And even though our church doesn't officially designate men as deacons, we have men that serve as deacons all the time. And that's something, to be honest with, we probably need to look at, whether it's men serving in the, in the sound ministry or in, in different areas, the landscaping, all this stuff. Okay, they serve the body so that we can be freed up as elders to do what God has called us to do spiritually. And by the way, in the, the New Testament, there's also what would be, some would conclude, the wives of deacons or ladies that served the body. They were referred to some denominations have deaconesses. So there's an opportunity there to serve the body as well. So you see the the structure here. You have the elders, you have the deacons, and then you have the members of the body. All right, this is what makes up the church. Um, Very clearly, it's it's not enough just to show up on Sundays. Um, that's, That's not what we're called to do as a church. But as Christians, we're called to be faithfully part of the local church so that we can minister and use our giftedness to help others grow within the body of Christ. Don't think that ministry just has to happen here on Sundays. Okay, if you see somebody maybe a little down and out and you want to take them out for coffee on a you know, Tuesday morning, go for it. That's ministry. That's what we're called to do. You know, and if you're ministering to somebody, that means somebody else doesn't have to be ministering to them. 
So you're, you're, you're fulfilling what God has called you to do. You're being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, and, and you're, you're, you're ministering to one another. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, we love one another. Mark chapter 9, verse 50 says this, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And then he says this, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You don't think of a salty person as a peaceful person, but that's what we're called to be. And it's an, it's an agent of change, right? That's what salt is. And so we're all called to be an agent of change in someone else's life in a peaceful manner. Also, give preference to one another. Romans 12, we saw this when we went through Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. Let your love be genuine. In other words, not hip, hypocritical. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly, there we go back to the family theme, affection. And then I love this part of the verse, outdo one another in showing honor. See, this was the issue they had in the Corinthian church. They were all trying to one-up each other. Oh, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I do this. I do that. Oh, I speak in tongues. I can heal. I can. And they just became a big competition. They weren't preferring one another as the Bible tells us to do. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. And then also admonish one another, Romans 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may be with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's, that's the purpose in everything we do, the glory of God. It's not so you get a, you know pat on the back or, oh, great job. It's it's for the glory of God. And then comfort one another. Paul says, therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words, talking about Christ coming back. We should be comforting to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we should encourage and build up one another. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. I love that Paul says that. He's encouraging them. And you know what? That's what I see going on in our small little church here. People building each other up, encouraging one another. And the last thing there, have fellowship with one another. Have fellowship with one another. So love one another, give preference to one another, admonish one another, comfort one another, encourage and build up one another, and have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, to wrap this all up, this little class on ecclesiology, the study of the church, if I had to summarize it, I would just say this. The church should not be just a group of people who meet together on Sundays. That's not the church. Rather, the church should be a closely knit together group of people who share their lives in a transparent way with one another freely. And I pray that we model that for you because that's what we're called to be separate, different. We're not called to be like the world. And so when people see us as the church, they can say, wow, that's a little different. Okay, not peculiar, not weird. We don't want to become weird people. Okay, there's a big difference. But really, by the world standard, we are. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would just 
continue to be thankful for even this, this church, first the universal church that you called us into, that you saved us to, but Lord, also just this local church, this property that we have and the seats that we sit in, the, the sound system we hear from, uh, the food that we eat afterwards, the people that serve uh, the body here in so many different ways. Lord, we just thank you for um, just your grace being upon this place, this 70-some years this church has been in existence with different pastors and different congregations at different points in time. And yet, Lord, it's remained faithful to your word. And, Father, I just pray that you would help us to be a beacon of light in this lost and dying world, the darkness that surrounds us, especially here in the Bay Area, that we would be able to just come together as the church and just glow for Christ in a way that would be honoring to you and glorifying to you. And Father, as we leave these four walls, I pray that we would take the message, the glorious message of the gospel, the message that that Jesus saves. When you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior and you cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me as a sinner. He will save you. He will change you. He will transform you. And then you can serve him as part, as a member of his body, the church. We thank you. Pray you bless our time over in the fellowship hall as well. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.